God, we thank you so much that you've opened up this opportunity for Gary and Hosea to gather all these pastors together. We just pray that today Gary has everything he needs from the Holy Spirit to do what you called him to do, that as they turn to your word this week, that their hearts would be touched and that you would spark a revolution across that entire country, that we would see Jesus made great in Madagascar this week. And I, I pray for us this morning as we turn to the word that you would touch our hearts and that our view of you would grow higher and higher during the rest of this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you guys haven't met me yet, I'm Jonathan Sheffron. I've been here for 20 plus years. I'm the pastor of life groups here at Grace Community Church. And one thing that you may not know about me is I'm really bad at house repair projects. So um, a couple weeks ago, I drove into my driveway and I noticed there were some missing kind of shingle tiles in my roof. And I uh, kind of just said, well, maybe if I pretend it's not there, they'll grow back. So uh, that didn't work. So about a week later, my neighbor kind of called me over in the front yard and said, hey, John, I noticed you're missing some kind of shingles kind of torn off. Um, he said, maybe it's because your kids were up there playing the other day. I'm thinking bad parent moment. Um, but he said, you know, really, it's not hard. You just kind of lift up the other one. And you kind of slide it in. You got to hammer back down. Easy. No problem. And I'm thinking to myself, it's easy for you to describe, but I'm going to try it. I'm going to be a good sport. I'm going to try it. So I, I tell my wife, okay, last Friday is roof repair day. So I go to Home Depot, and if you're one of those guys who understands Home Depot, I am so proud of you. I am not that guy. So I am walking up and down the aisles looking for where are the roof shingles. And I was smart enough to bring a little, a little swatch to match color. So I got that far, and I finally found them. There was different kinds. There's a salesman trying to help me, and I'm like, I don't feel like I know what I'm doing. Eventually, I got a big, heavy thing of shingles. I put in my cart and then I got some like sealant glue because the YouTube video said you need sealant glue so I got that put that in my cart got to the cash register and I didn't have my wallet so then I got back in the car drove home got my wallet drove back to Home Depot they put all my stuff away so then I go back up into the aisles to get all the tiles and the glue again go back to the register and pay for it on the way home I'm getting a text from my wife are you done with the roof repair yet and I'm thinking I am very bad at this I am very ineffective at house repair so I get home I get the ladder out we get up on the roof my son is there saying dad you got this I'm like I do not got this and my neighbor comes out of the backyard, oh, I see you're repairing the roof. Yeah, you just do this. And he waves his hand, and I'm thinking, yes, this is not what I'm doing. So I spent about 90 minutes on the roof and think, I am the most ineffective house repair guy. So um, I just want to say, if you are one of those, bless you. I'm so glad you're here. You can live an abundant life being really bad at house repair. But one thing you cannot do is be ineffective in your prayer life or ineffective in your commitment to God and live an abundant life. That's what you can't be. And when we turn to uh, James 5.16, James is going to talk about how to become effective in our spiritual life. And he's going to give us an example of a guy we're going to learn some lessons from this morning on how to be effective in our spiritual life. James 5.16b says this, The prayer of a righteous person has great effectiveness. And then he picks an example for us. He said, Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and there was no rain on the land for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land sprouted with a harvest. Who was this Elijah guy? And why, when James, the brother of Jesus, wanted to give us an example of someone who's effective for making an impact for God, why did he think of Elijah? Well, as a short recap, we're in the middle of a series called God's Grand Story. 
This is where we're taking all the stories in the Old Testament as they come to us, and we're watching how God is always working, sometimes right in front of us, like when he parted the Red Sea for Moses. That's a right in front of us. God's obvious what he's doing. But sometimes God's working behind the scenes. But we know that he's always working for our good and his glory. You know, Jesus said in John 5, 17, he was hassled by some Pharisees about him doing some good on the Sabbath. And he said this, my father is always working and so am I. So we know for sure that God is working today just like he did back in history. And the story we're going to focus on today is a real dark time in Israel's story. This is a time of the divided kingdom. This is after Solomon uh, died when the kingdom was divided. We have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. A lot of the stories we've been hearing about the last few weeks are the southern kingdom. And they at least had a few kings that were pretty good. Kings like Asa, Jehoshaphat. We've had some sermons on, it was hit or miss in the southern kingdom, but we had some. I want to show you a map here just to get in your, your brain where we are. Today we're going to go and look at the northern kingdom where Jeroboam was. And Jeroboam, we had a sermon on him. He was not great. And it gets worse as king after king after king after king is worse than the guy before him. Until finally we get to the dumpster fire that is King Ahab. And we read about him in 1 Kings 16.31. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he, Ahab, married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Now, if some of you guys heard it, Baal, we don't quite know how it's pronounced. When I was in Awan as a kid, I learned Baal, so it just stuck in my brain. But Baal was the local deity for lightning and thunder and fertility in the land. And uh, that was uh, where the Sidonians, you know, in a nearby country in the northwest, they worshipped the, the Baal, national deity. And, and so uh, the king of Israel, Ahab, not only starts worshiping Baal, he marries Jezebel. Now, scholars may think she was like a high priestess because of her political position of all the worship of Baal. Well, it gets worse in verse 33. Ahab also made the Asherah. So Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Asher was some sort of fertility goddess, and they would have some sort of crafted pole that they would worship to worship Asherah. And sometimes Asherah was pictured as the mother of Baal. And again, you got this idea of fertility, and all these idols are promising things to the people of Israel. And Ahab has bought it all hook, line, and sinker. Now, I sometimes thought growing up the idols were just kind of like this empty stick or empty pole or some sort of crafted image. And, and sometimes in the Old Testament, they're, they're talked about that way. But they're more than just that. See, Jesus in Matthew 12, 26, 27 uses Beelzebub or Beelzebub interchangeably with Satan. And he says, behind these idols, there are demonic forces at work. And when we are worshiping an idol, we're literally worship, worshiping demonic forces. And we're giving them something that they, we should not be giving them. So literally we have the king of Israel, Ahab, God's chosen people, marrying the high priestess of a local satanic worship center, worshiping idols. What more could you do to hack God off in this moment of Israel's history? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, God tells Israel exactly what would happen if they go down this path. He said, you know, I, I gave you this promised land. I said, if you'll just remain loyal to me. If you'll just stay true to me, then you'll have blessing in this land. 
But he gave them the Ten Commandments. And do you guys remember what the first of the Ten Commandments is? Someone shout it out to me. No other gods. It's not don't kill people. It's not don't steal. It's not don't covet. We always jump to those. The first commandment was do not worship other gods. God cares deeply that he gets our allegiance and our worship. They were not to look for other gods for direction or provision or protection. They were to look to Yahweh. And if they went down this path, God told them exactly what he would do. And he tells them that in Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 19. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them whatever I command. I will personally hold responsible anyone who then pays no attention to the words that prophet speaks in my name. So shockingly, God does exactly what he said he would do. And he raises up a prophet. And we meet him in 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now we don't know a lot about Elijah. He just shows up on the scene. He somehow gets an appointment with the king. And he shows up, and his name is Elijah. That's really all we kind of know about him. He's from the, not from a connected family. He's not from a famous dad. He, he doesn't come from a famous city. He is just a dude. And James said he's just a dude like any one of us. He's just a person. But we know one thing about him, and that's his name. And his name literally means Yahweh is my God. And he wears that identity on him. And he is walking into King Ahab's presence. And Ahab has publicly worshipped idols, would not have welcomed this message. And Ahab had the ability to kill him if he chose. He walks right up to Ahab and says, my name is Elijah. Yahweh is my God. And here's what's going to happen. There is not going to be any rain in Israel until I say so. That Baal you worship, that, that God of, of fertility and rain, yeah, he's going to be doing nothing about this. That Asherah pole you set up, you think it's going to protect you from this drought, yeah, that's not going to work. I'm going to be the only one in this whole nation who can stop this drought. And it starts now. Mic drop, he walks out of the room. And so the contest begins between the true God, Yahweh, and the false God, Baal, who was so commonly worshipped in Israel in that day. Now, how did Elijah know what to pray? You know, I surely God spoke to him. I, I firmly believe he heard God's voice. But I think it's interesting to read in Deuteronomy 11 what God said he would do if Israel goes down this path. Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 to 17. Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. See, Elijah knew what to pray because he had read God's word. And when it came time to pray, God brought to his mind exactly what to pray. So he knew he was praying according to God's will in this moment. He delivers his word and he skips town. Now, I'm not sure like how long it took Ahab and Jezebel to get concerned. Um, I, I probably didn't rain every day, so probably like, I don't know who this crazy guy is. Um, I'm in fact, you know, there was lots of people who claimed to be prophets in the Old Testament. How do you know who a real prophet is? Well, Deuteronomy 18.22 says, If someone comes in the name of the Lord and delivers a prophecy, 
and it doesn't come to happen, you can ignore that guy. But if he delivers a prophecy and it does come to happen, then that's from the Lord. So I think they're kind of in this testing phase. I don't know what this is, but day after day goes by, maybe a week goes by, a couple weeks, it's starting to get a little dry outside, and they start getting concerned. And, and they're like, we got to find this guy. But Elijah didn't leave a forwarding address at the palace gates. He is zipped off somewhere. He has gone to some little stream that God has led him to where he gets water. And then God has these birds come by and deliver Amazon Prime packages to him, <laughs> giving him food every day. And so he is provided for in the midst of this judgment. But eventually it gets real dry and the stream dries up. So God says, I'm going to send you somewhere else. I'm going to show you a map real fast. God's going to send Elijah out of Israel to Baal country, to northwest where Sidon is, this little town called Zirphath. And, and this is what we find happens when Elijah shows up in this little town called Zirphath in Jezebel land. Chapter 17, verse 10. So he arose, went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. He's probably tired after that hike. As she was going to get it, he called her and said, please bring me some bread too. Bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread. I have only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And I'm, I'm just gathering a few sticks that I can go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and then die. I think it's interesting to note that as we're having this great contest, God doesn't leave Sidon out of the mix. He lets them experience that same drought that Israel's experiencing because that's where all the Baal worship came from. And things are getting dark there. Things are getting rough there. We have this widow. In Old Testament times, it was ethical for a king to care for the widows, to provide for them, protect them. That was, even in uh, other countries, not just Israel, that was normative. But in this place, this widow is uncared for and unprotected and unprovided for. And God wants to show that even in Baal country, he can be a king, a good king, and provide for the widows just like he can the people of Israel. So Elijah gives her a deal. He says, I want you to trust me and trust Yahweh. And, and here's how it's going to work. If you are all in on Yahweh, here's how you can show it. You're going to take a little oil, that last little oil you got, and that flour, and I want you to mix it up into a cake, and I want you to bake it and give it to me first. And if you'll give it to me first, I know that's the last you got. But if you do this, that oil jar and that flour container is never going to run dry as long as this drought happens. And she believes him. And she tries it. And you know what? God provides for her year after year after year of this drought out of this miraculous jar. And then uh, we don't have time to do the story, but there's a moment in the story where her son dies. And she turns to the prophet and says, you know, why did you let this happen? You know, and, and so Elijah then prays and her son comes back to life. Again, showing how Elijah's God, Yahweh, is superior to the God of Baal to the God of her country, and he can provide. After three years of famine, after three years of this contest going on and on, it's finally time to bring this thing to an end. So God sends Elijah back to Israel. He meets up with Ahab, and this is how he's greeted in 1 Kings 18, 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? I'm shocked by the arrogance of this guy. Like, there's no remorse. There's no, man, I, I have messed up. Would you have mercy on us? 
I brought the, the, the kingdom into idol worship. Let's, how do we fix this? No, he just points a finger and says, you trouble of Israel. And Elijah wants none of it. 1 Kings 18, 18, he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. 1 Kings 18, 19. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Why do you think Elijah said he was alone? Well, it's because Jezebel had killed all the prophets she could find. If she had known where his forwarding address was, she would try to kill him too. There weren't many left. There's a few hidden in a cave that Obadiah had helped out. There's, there's some other, but there's not many. And Elijah knows if God doesn't come through for him, he is a dead man on this mountain. The odds are 850 to 1, and he is not going to do well. But if you're on God's side, and you are all in on him, as Gary talked about last week, and you trust him, then you are never alone, and you can never really lose. Let's let the contest begin. 1 Kings 18, 23. Now let them give us two oxen, and let them, those false prophets, choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood. But don't put any fire under it, and I'll prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I won't put any fire under it. Then you call on the name of, the, of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all people said, that's a good idea. This sounds fair. Now Elijah gave the prophets of Baal every advantage. He let them pick the oxen. He let them go first. He picked fire. Now the, Baal is the God of storm and lightning. If you can't get that God to give a spark during a three-and-a-half-year drought to get some twigs on fire, what is this God capable of doing? I mean, I've seen some Texas summers. I mean, recently we had one where it was like, dude, my front yard was dead, beyond dead, beyond dead. And I was thinking, if somebody drops something, this whole thing will go up in flames. Well, this was three-and-a-half years of drought. I mean, this is the driest of dry wood. And Elijah says, I just want your God of Baal to just, little spark. That's it, little spark. And you win. So Baal starts. And the prophets start dancing and they start chanting and they start praying. And they, they say, Baal, come. And he is silent. He's absolutely silent. This happens all morning long until it's lunchtime. And Elijah's starting to taunt him a little bit. Hey, maybe, maybe your God's asleep or maybe he's on a journey or maybe he needs some hearing aids. And he starts taunting them a little bit, and they start getting desperate. As they're worshiping their idol, they, they start to cut themselves and do some sort of satanic worship ritual, begging their God to come through. And all afternoon, they try, and they try, and they try. But their idol is silent and helpless to respond. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took the twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. You wonder why the, the altar was broken down. Well, I'm sure Jezebel, along with killing the prophets, 
she kind of said, I don't want any altars to Yahweh around here. So she would tear them down. Well, Elijah, he starts rebuilding it according to the tribes of Israel, reminding Israel of their identity. You see, even though their behavior was abhorrent to God, they never lost that they were God's chosen people. See, our, our sin can break fellowship with the Lord, but it can't change how he sees us. It just changes fellowship with us. It means that we're separate from him when it comes to his blessings and his fellowship. But, but the people of Israel were still his people, and he loved them. So Elijah rebuilds the altar, and he puts the ox on it, and he puts some wood on it. And he says, okay, I'm all in here. Because if this doesn't work, I'm a dead man. I don't know if he doubted or not, but my guess is he didn't doubt. He'd seen God do enough things. He'd seen God enough miracles. He knew that God was going to come through for him. So just to make sure, he grabbed some water. He didn't want anyone to think there was a trick here. And he grabbed some water, and he just like poured it all over the wood, man. He got it all wet. You guys ever tried to start a fire with wet wood? It's not easy. Get a fire starter out there. But he's like, man, I want to do this. So he poured like three jars full. He poured one, went back, get filled again, poured it again, get it all wet in there. He poured a third jar so much that it filled up a whole trench. There's a trench of water all around the fire, soaking wet everything. And he says, it's time to pray. And this is what he prayed in verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I asked Kevin if I could make a huge fireball this morning. He said there's sprinkler systems and there's issues with that. Um, so I'm that guy who asked permission and forgiveness later. But you just imagine like this huge fireball falling down from heaven. And it is clear to everyone that Yahweh is God. The scales have fallen off the people of Israel's eyes. Just a few minutes earlier, Elijah asked him, you know, hey, who are you going to serve, Baal or God? And they were silent. But once the scales fall off, I don't think they're going to be silent anymore. You know, this contest is over. So Elijah turns to Ahab and says, okay, Ahab, I'm going to give you a head start because I'm about to pray. I'm going to pray for a gusher. and We're going to see a rain come. Like it hasn't come in three and a half years. And if you stick around here, your wheels are going to get stuck in the, in the muck and the mud and your chariot's going to get stuck. And we don't have AAA out here, so you better go. So he takes off and God does one more fun thing just because God's fun. He gives Elijah, this, this man, he gives him the speed of a Jamaican and he gives him the endurance of a Kenyan. And he outruns Elijah all the way back to, he outruns Ahab all the way back to Jezreel. I mean, Hussein Bolt would have been left in his dust on this day. This was such a feat of running. You know, the, the contest was over. It wasn't close. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, it went to a tiebreaker. It was a lopsided blowout moment where Yahweh wins. You see, Yahweh always wins. And, and the question is, who is on Yahweh's side? Who is all in on Yahweh? See, I think some of us walked in today and we thought that, you know, idols aren't that big a deal to God. 
But Elijah, in his day, chose to say no to idols, even though it could have cost him something. He said no to the idols of his day. And I think the question for us is, are we willing to say no to the idols in our day? See, I went to India on a trip a few years ago, uh, and when I was over there, I was just shocked because there's idols everywhere, like literally figurines and idols, and they all have names, and there's just millions of them. I got in the taxi, and my taxi driver had idols along his dashboard, and I said, what are those like for? What are the names? He says, oh, these protect me. They provide for me. Um, I put them there so they will help me get all the blessings that I need. And I got back to America, and I was like, whew, I'm so glad I'm in a land of no idols again. Our idols are just a little subtler. They're, a little, they, they're not quite as obvious. And, and there was idols in Paul's day too, Ephesians 5.5. 5. I'm just going to call it a couple. But, but any, any idol is something that we elevate to the place of God. It's where any created thing, any creation, we say, this is what I need for protection. This is what I need for direction. This is what I need for joy that we put above God. So Ephesians 5.5 5 says this, For this you know with certainty... That no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person, which amounts to an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, Paul highlights sex and materialism as idols in his day that the church in Ephesus was struggling with. Do you think we struggle with those idols in modern day America? I mean, have you, have you turned on a halftime show at the Super Bowl lately? I hope you haven't. Uh, if, you, if you go anywhere in our society... These are constant messages for us. And, and I feel like there's constant idol salesmen that walk around saying, if you buy this idol, if you buy this one, this will get you what you really want. So what does it look like to worship the idol of sexual immorality? And I think the definition would be, if we look for sexual gratification to anything except for a marriage between a man and a woman, then that is worshiping the idol of sexual immorality. If we go outside this marriage relationship between a man and woman for any sexual gratification, we are worshiping at the idol of sexual morality. And some of you who are single right now, you're looking to say, easy for you to say, married guy. And, and I, I want to say, uh, first of all, just because you're married doesn't mean the idol salesman of sexual morality never knocks on your door. So I want to I just clear that up that he does, and it's my job with the Holy Spirit's help to slam the door on him. But I do want to say, if you came in single today, my encouragement to you is if you will say no to that idol salesman too, you will not miss out on any of the abundant life God has for you. See, Jesus, when he was here, he lived his entire life until he died on the cross as a single person. And he did not miss out on authentic relationship. He did not miss out on joy. He did not miss out on impacting the world. But you say, well, that's Jesus. Well, we got Paul, too. We have so many we could pick from. Paul lived his entire adult ministry life as a single. And he did not miss out on impacting the world for God. He did not miss out on authentic relationship. He did not miss out on joy. He, he did not miss out on the abundant life. He had all of that. So I don't know if your, your time of singleness is going to be short or long. But whatever it is, just realize you're not going to miss out if you go all in on God. You won't. But also, Paul mentions materialism as an idol. And man, materialism, that's a sneaky one. Because God loves us to enjoy stuff, right? I mean, he created creation for our enjoyment. We just have to be careful it doesn't get more important than him. We have to be careful we don't start getting our joy from things rather than the creator. 
You know, I think one of the, the verses that helps me in this way is Deuteronomy 8.18, where it says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. See, I think sometimes we think that the money we have is because we're really clever, or we're really strong, or we worked really hard. And, and I think what, what God's just reminding us of is that we are simply stewards. All of it comes from him. And he's saying, I'm going to give you some, and some I want you to use for yourself, so I want you to give away. But you're a steward of all these things, and someday you're going to have to answer for how you stewarded the things I gave you. Many of the staff are, are currently taking FPU, Financial Peace University, at noon on Wednesdays. And if you guys have never taken this, uh, we purchased it for everyone at Grace Community Church. So you can get a, a free license to it at gracearlington.com finances. But we're every, every Wednesday at noon, for those of the staff who haven't taken it, we're going through financial peace together. And he talks a lot about stewardship in this class. He talks about debt. And one of the things that I really appreciated was Pastor Steve in one of the recent classes. You know, he, he shared th this idea. He said, when you want something and you can't afford it, it's okay to ask God for it. But what's not okay is immediately to run to a credit card or run into debt to get that thing. You know, at some point, God's saying, hey, be content with what I've provided for you now. And it is shocking the level of debt that happens in believers' lives. And it's because the, the, the world is constantly throwing things like, this will make you happy. This new iPhone will make you happy. This new car will solve all your problems. You will get joy from this. And we only get joy if we steward things with the right perspective. We only get joy from them if we are open-handed and we give gratefulness to God for what he's given us. Now, before I came to work here at Grace, I worked over in Dallas as a consultant for Alvarez and Marcel. I did a lot of computer investigations all over the world. Did a lot of really fun projects as an as a analyst and a consultant. And I was making a lot of money. And Gary, uh, he came to me and said, John, I want you to consider coming on staff here at Grace. Leave that behind. Come on staff here. And uh, he said, but just realize it's going to be a big pay cut. And, you know, I, I said, man, Lord, am I really all in on you? Those are those moments when you have to ask that question. And God just made it so clear to me I was supposed to come on staff here, and I said yes to him. And you know what's been so wonderful is over the 10-plus years I've been on staff here, I have never felt like, man, God has not provided for me. He has always provided for me. Way and beyond just, just needs to so many things. And he's so creative in how he does it, you know. And so it's not like it's, I give this to God, he gives me back the same thing. It's like he does it different ways, but I've never been in God's debt. He has always outgiven me when I've tried to give him things. So my question for us as we kind of land this plane is, I think some of us came in today with some idols, some, some habits in our life that God's saying, it's time to get rid of that idol. It's time to get rid of the habit. And it's time to toss it out of your life and said, look to me for your joy. Look to me for your provision. Look to me for your protection. And what does it look like to get rid of an idol? Well, it could be a variety of things, but the process is the same. It's 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sin. We agree with God about the idol. That idol is not okay. And then we receive his forgiveness, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, sometimes these habits are kind of sticky, so we got to, like, you know, work Add it a little more, maybe reach out to a life group member, maybe reach out to someone in the church, say, would you help me? Because I want to keep this idol. When that idol sales comes and knocks on my door, I want to make sure I don't say yes to it the next time. 
But today, my encouragement is, if, you, if God kind of brought to mind some things, you need to get rid of out of your life. Let's confess it. Let's first John 1, 9 it and get it out of there. If you came in and you just felt a little spiritually dry, maybe part of the reason is you haven't been going to God for spiritual rain. I want to give you a great idol prevention verse uh, that, that's helped me a lot. Matthew 6, 33. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. I know from that promise that if I keep pursuing Jesus, if I keep seeing him as the most important thing in my life, I'm going to have everything I will ever need that's good for me. Would you guys stand up with me? Let's bow our heads. God, I just pray right now that you would bring to mind any idols that need to be tossed into the dumpster, that we picked them on the way, any things that we have bought, hook, line, and sinker, the message from the world. And I just pray that you'd help us to confess that to you right now. Would you help us to say, God, I'm sorry, I bought that. I'm giving, giving that up right now. And I am going to pursue you. I'm going to see you as the most important thing in my life. And I receive your forgiveness today. Because you are so good. Just like you forgave the people of Israel. You're so good to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I ask that you would replace where that idol worship was with worship of Yahweh. We would have worship and recognition of how great you are and how good you are and how much life you want to give us. Pray for those who came in today that are just feeling lonely. Elijah was like, I'm alone left here. I'm the last prophet here. I just pray that you would help us who came in needing that encouragement that you see us and you will answer. Pray that you would give us perseverance in our prayer life, perseverance in our trust of you, and perseverance that we will run the race and we will finish well. In Jesus' name.